welcome to the first episode of Go to Sleep. I'm your host, Arik Devins. Because this is the first episode, I thought I should take some time to explain who I am and what I'm trying to accomplish with this show. First of all, as I said, my name is Arik. I'm 36 years old, and I live in San Francisco, California with my fiancé. Actually, I'm pretty sure that's the first time I've called her my fiancé out loud. We just got engaged a few weeks ago, and it's, it's still a very new term for me. But it's a good thing that I brought her up, because she's the reason that I'm doing this show in the first place. See, she likes to fall asleep with someone reading to her. And sometimes that's me, and I, I enjoy that, but I'm often unavailable. She's from Germany, and so she listens to a German podcast called the Einschlafen Podcast which is really the inspiration for this show. Uh, if you understand German or would like to hear someone reading to you in a language you don't understand, I highly recommend you check it out. It's excellent. I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. So uh, the idea for this show is to replicate what I do when I help her fall asleep, and hopefully she can use it and you can too. So I'll be doing a combination of rambling like I'm doing now, and then I'll read from the middle of books that you probably aren't that interested in with to begin with. I'm going to start this inaugural episode with the story of how I got engaged, because I think it's pretty cool, and then I'll follow it up by a few chapters of book one of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. So, I've been with my fiancé, still very weird, I've been with my fiancé for about three and a half years, and... Earlier this year, we decided that um, as we both were between jobs suddenly, we would take the opportunity to do some traveling in Europe so we could see her family and explore a little bit. And I realized that if I was going to propose to her, that would be a really wonderful time to do it. So I have a ring that is a family heirloom. It was an anniversary present from my grandfather to my grandmother, and that was the ring I was going to use. So I brought the ring to Europe. Actually, I had my parents bring the ring to Europe when they came to visit us during the summer. But anyway, I had the ring in my pocket for um, several weeks, maybe a month before I actually proposed. It was incredibly nerve-wracking. I was constantly worried I was going to lose it. Anyway, we knew we were going to spend a little bit of the trip in Spain with some friends of ours, specifically in Granada, and they let us know that one of the nights we were there was their anniversary, and so they would be unavailable to hang out with us, and that seemed like the perfect night for me to propose. Additionally, they had actually made two reservations for a nice dinner, and only planned to use one, so they offered us the other one. So that was even even better. Unfortunately, I wear glasses. And on this trip, I also had a pair of prescription sunglasses. And that day, I lost my glasses. I was so nervous about proposing that night that I lost my glasses in a taxi cab in Granada. And we called the cab company, of course, and had the hotel call as well, but the glasses did not show up. So I was forced to spend the rest of the day, and actually the next two weeks, wearing only my prescription sunglasses. And I was planning on proposing at night. So 
that was a bit of a shakeup, but you know, I had planned this for a long time. I wasn't going to let something like that stop me. So we went to the dinner that they had booked for us, which was at the very top of a very narrow museum building looking over all of Granada. It was super cool. It was really not very wide. The building was maybe 20 feet across or something like that, just enough for two tables and a little place for the waiters to walk between. But it was totally glass on both sides, and you could see all of Granada. So I'm sitting there in this very nice restaurant, enjoying a nice meal with my future fiancé, my girlfriend, wearing my sunglasses and um, hoping that nobody asked about them, which, to their credit, and very nicely, they didn't. Anyway, as the meal was coming to a close and I'm getting sort of more and more nervous, I uh, said to her, oh, let's, you know, let's walk back to the hotel. And she said, ah, yeah, okay, but I really have to go to the bathroom. And I said, okay, we were, we were outside of the hotel at this point, so the restaurant at this point, so she couldn't uh, use it there. And I said, okay, that's great, but can we just walk to, to someplace nice? Because the, the walk back to the hotel was through a kind of a shopping area. It wasn't really like the beauty of Granada. I said, you know what, this is our last day in Granada, and I, I really want to remember it well. So can we just go someplace pretty for a few minutes before we go back to the hotel? Which, in retrospect, given that I was wearing my sunglasses, was kind of a ridiculous request, but she went along with it, and she says she was totally unaware of what was coming next. So we walked through the streets of Granada, and it was crazy because um, if you're from the United States, you do not expect lots and lots of people to be out at midnight on a Wednesday. But this was like the middle of the day. It's so hot in Granada and in Spain in general that the people were everywhere. And what was so surprising to me, at least, was how many children were running around. I mean, it was really like my my fiancé said that it was like someone had just turned off the sun, but it was actually noon. It was wild. So we're walking through all these people and we're checking it all out and... We walked past the hotel and down to this little street that we had spent uh, on the day before, which is directly beneath the Alhambra, and um, and there's these series of little bridges. It's it's very very pretty. And so um, I said, "Oh, why don't we stand on one of those bridges for a second and uh, take it all in, and then we can head back to the hotel." And uh, and she agreed. So we were standing on this bridge. Underneath the Alhambra, Granada, Spain, I'm wearing my sunglasses, it's very dark, and that is the moment I decided to tell her that um, that I was really happy that our day had gone so well, even with the chaos of me losing my glasses, and that I felt like it was one of the strengths of our relationship that we could have setbacks or we could have difficult situations and it didn't matter. We would come together and have a great time anyway. And that that was why this day in particular felt like the perfect day to ask her a very important question. And then I have no idea what I said, but something like, will you marry me? To which she said, yes. Wait, is this real? Which I think is one of my favorite responses to any question ever now. And I said, yes, it is real. And I took out the ring and I explained the family heirloom stuff and all this kind of stuff. And then I realized that I hadn't really heard what she said until later when I thought back on it. So I said, wait, did you say yes? And she said, yes. And 
then we celebrated. So after that, we went back to the hotel and, and called my parents and called my sibling and, and called other people, and it was great. But that's the story of how I got engaged to in Granada, Spain, while wearing my sunglasses at midnight on a bridge underneath the Alhambra. Okay, so now I'm going to read from A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, starting with Chapter 4, The Preparation. When the mail got successfully to Dover, in the course of the forenoon, the head drawer at the Royal George Hotel opened the coach door as his custom was. He did it with some flourish of ceremony, for a mail journey from London in winter was an achievement to congratulate an adventurous traveler upon. By that time there was only one adventurous traveler left to be congratulated, for the two others had been set down at their respective roadside destinations. The mildewy inside of the coach, with its damp and dirty straw, its disagreeable smell, and its obscurity, was rather like a larger dog kennel. Mr. Lorry, the passenger, shaking himself out of it in chains of straw, a tangle of shaggy wrapper, flapping hat, and muddy legs, was rather like a larger sort of dog. There will be a packet to Calais tomorrow, drawer. Yes, sir. If the weather holds and the wind sets tolerable fair, the tide will serve pretty nicely at about two in the afternoon, sir. Bed, sir? I shall not go to bed till night, but I want a bedroom and a barber. And then breakfast, sir? Yes, sir. That way, sir, if you please, show Concord. Gentleman's valise and hot water to Concord. Pull off gentleman's boots in Concord. You will find a fine sea coal fire, sir. Fetch barber to Concord. Stir about there now for Concord. The Concord bedchamber, being always assigned to a passenger by the mail, and passengers by the mail being always heavily wrapped up from head to foot, the room had the odd interest for the establishment of the Royal George, that although but one kind of man was seen to go into it, all kinds and varieties of men came out of it. Consequently, another drawer and two porters, and several maids and the landlady, were all loitering by accident at various points of the road between the Concord and the coffee room, when a gentleman of sixty, formerly dressed in a brown suit of clothes, pretty well worn, but very well kept, with large square cuffs and large flaps to the pockets, passed along on his way to his breakfast. The coffee room had no other occupant that forenoon than the gentleman in brown. His breakfast table was drawn before the fire, and as he sat, with its light shining on him, waiting for the meal, he sat so still that he might have been sitting for his portrait. Very orderly and methodical he looked, with a hand on each knee and a loud watch ticking a sonorous sermon under his flapped waistcoat, as though it pitted its gravity and longevity against the levity and evanescence of the brisk fire. He had a good leg and was a little vain of it, for his brown stockings fitted sleek and close and were of a fine texture. His shoes and buckles, too, though plain, were trim. He wore an odd little sleek, crisp flaxen wig, setting very close to his head, which wig, it is to be presumed, was made of hair, but which looked far more as though it were spun from filaments of silk or glass. His linen, though not of a fineness in accordance with his stockings, was as white as the tops of the waves that broke upon the neighboring beach, or the specks of sail that glinted in the sunlight far at sea. A face habitually suppressed and quieted was still lighted up under the quaint wig by a pair of moist bright eyes that it must have cost their owner, in years gone by, some pains to drill to the composed and reserved expression of Tellson's bank. He had a healthy color in his cheeks, and his face, though lined, bore few traces of anxiety. But perhaps the confidential bachelor clerks in Tellson's bank 
were principally occupied with the cares of other people, and perhaps second-hand cares, like second-hand clothes, come easily, off and on. Completing his resemblance to a man who was sitting for his portrait, Mr. Lorry dropped off to sleep. The arrival of his breakfast roused him, and he said to the drawer as he moved his chair to it, I wish accommodation prepared for a young lady who may come here at any time of day. She may ask for Mr. Jarvis Lorry, or she may only ask for a gentleman from Telson's Bank. Please to let me know. Yes, sir. Telson's Bank in London, sir? Yes. Yes, sir. We have oftentimes the honor to entertain your gentlemen in their traveling backwards and forwards betwixt London and Paris, sir. A vast deal of traveling, sir, in Telson and Company's house. Yes, we are quite a French house as well as an English one. Yes, sir. Not much in the habit of traveling yourself, I think, sir. Not of late years. It is fifteen years since we, since I, came last from France. Indeed, sir? That was before my time here, sir. Before our people's time here, sir. The George was in other hands at that time, sir. I believe so. But I would hold a pretty wager, sir, that a house like Telson and Company was flourishing a matter of fifty, not to speak of fifteen years ago. You might treble that and say a hundred and fifty, yet not be far from the truth. Indeed, sir. Rounding his mouth and both his eyes as he stepped backward from the table, the waiter shifted his napkin from his right arm to his left, dropped into a comfortable attitude, and stood surveying the guest while he ate and drank, as from an observatory or watchtower, according to the immemorial usage of waiters in all ages. When Mr. Lorry had finished his breakfast, he went out for a stroll on the beach. The little narrow, crooked town of Dover hid itself away from the beach and ran its head into the chalk cliffs, like a marine ostrich. The beach was a desert of heaps of sea and stones tumbling wildly about, and the sea did what it liked, and what it liked was destruction. It thundered at the town and thundered at the cliffs and brought the coast down madly. The air among the houses was of so strong a piscatory flavor that one might have supposed sick fish went up to be dipped in it, as sick people went down to be dipped in the sea. A little fishing was done in the port, and a quantity of strolling about by night, and looking seaward, particularly at those times when the tide made and was near flood. Small tradesmen who did no business whatever sometimes unaccountably realized large fortunes, and it was remarkable that nobody in the neighborhood could endure a lamplighter. As the day declined into the afternoon, and the air, which had been at intervals clear enough to allow the French coast to be seen, became again charged with mist and vapor, Mr. Lorry's thoughts seemed to cloud too. When it was dark, and he sat before the coffee-room fire, awaiting his dinner as he awaited his breakfast, his mind was busily digging, 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 in the live red coals. A bottle of good claret after dinner does a digger in the red coals no harm, otherwise than as it has a tendency to throw him out of work. Mr. Lorry had been idle a long time, and had just poured out his last glassful of wine, with as complete an appearance of satisfaction as is ever to be found in an elderly gentleman of a fresh complexion who has got to the end of a bottle, when a rattling of wheels came up the narrow street and rumbled into the inn-yard. <sighs> he sat down his glass untouched. This is Mademoiselle, said he. In a very few minutes the waiter came in to announce that Miss Manette had arrived from London and would be happy to see the gentleman from Telson's. So soon? Miss Manette had taken some refreshment on the road and required none then, and was extremely anxious to see the gentleman from Telson's immediately, if it suited his pleasure and convenience. The gentleman from Telson's had nothing left for it but to empty his glass with an air of stolid desperation, settle his odd little flaxen wig at the ears, and follow the waiter to Miss Manette's apartment. 
It was a large, dark room, furnished in a funereal manner with black horsehair and loaded with heavy, dark tables. These had been oiled and oiled until the two tall candles on the table in the middle of the room were gleefully reflected on every leaf, as if they were buried in deep graves of black mahogany, and no light to speak of could be expected from them until they were dug out. The obscurity was so difficult to penetrate that Mr. Lorry, picking his way over the well-worn turkey carpet, supposed Miss Manette to be, for the moment, in some adjacent room, until, having got past the two tall candles, he saw standing to receive them by the table between them and the fire, a young lady of not more than seventeen, in a riding cloak, and still holding her straw traveling hat by its ribbon in her hand. As his eyes rested on a short, slight, pretty figure, a quantity of golden hair, a pair of blue eyes that met his own with an inquiring look, and a forehead with a singular capacity, remembering how young and smooth it was, of rifting and knitting itself into an expression that was not quite one of perplexity or wonder or alarm, or merely of a bright fixed attention, although it included all the four expressions. As his eyes rested on these things, a sudden vivid likeness passed before him, of a child whom he had held in his arms on the passage across that very channel, one cold time, when the hail drifted heavily and the sea ran high, the likeness passed away like a breath along the surface of the gaunt pier-glass behind her, on the frame of which a hospital procession of cupids, several headless and all cripples, were offering black baskets of dead sea-fruit to black divinities of the feminine gender, and he made his formal bow to Miss Manette. "'Pray take a seat, sir,' in a very clear and pleasant young voice, a little foreign in its accent, but a very little indeed." I kiss your hand, miss, said Mr. Lorry, with the manner of an earlier date, as he made his formal bow again and took his seat. I received a letter from the bank, sir, yesterday, informing me that some intelligence or discovery, the word is not material, miss, either word will do, respecting the small property of my poor father, who I never saw, so long dead, Mr. Lorry moved in his chair and cast a troubled look towards the hospital procession of cupids, as if they had any help for anybody in their absurd baskets rendered it necessary that I should go to Paris, there to communicate with a gentleman of the bank, so good as to be dispatched to Paris for the purpose. Myself, as I was prepared to hear, sir, she curtsied to him, young ladies made curtsies in those days, with a pretty desire to convey to him that she felt how much older and wiser he was than she. He made her another bow. I replied to the bank, sir, that it was considered necessary, by those who know, and who are so kind as to advise me, that I should go to France, and that as I am an orphan, and have no friend who could go with me, I should esteem it highly if I might be permitted to place myself, during the journey, under that worthy gentleman's protection. The gentleman had left London, but I think a messenger was sent after him to beg the favor of his waiting for me here. I was happy, said Mr. Lorry, to be entrusted with the charge. I shall be more happy to execute it. Sir, I thank you indeed. I thank you very gratefully. It was told me by the bank that the gentleman would explain to me the details of the business, and that I must prepare myself to find them of a surprising nature. I have done my best to prepare myself, and I naturally have a strong and eager interest to know what they are. Naturally, said Mr. Lorry, yes, I. After a pause, he added again, settling the crisp flaxen wig at the ears, it is very difficult to begin. He did not begin, but in his indecision met her glance. The young forehead lifted itself into that singular expression, but it was pretty and characteristic, besides being singular, and she raised her hand as if with an involuntary action she caught at or stayed some passing shadow. "'Are you quite a stranger to me, sir? Am I not?' Mr. Lorry opened his hands and extended them outwards with an argumentative smile. 
Between the eyebrows and just over the little feminine nose, the line of which was as delicate and fine as it was possible to be, the expression deepened itself as she took her seat thoughtfully in the chair by which she had hitherto remained standing. He watched her as she must, and the moment she raised her eyes again went on. In your adopted country, I presume, I cannot do better than address you as a young English lady, Miss Manette. If you please, sir. Miss Manette, I am a man of business. I have a business charge to equip myself of. In your reception of it, don't heed me any more than if I was a speaking machine. Truly, I am not much else. I will, with your leave, relate to you, miss, the story of one of our customers. Story. He seemed willfully to mistake the words she had repeated when he added, in a hurry, Yes, customers. In the banking business, we usually call our connection our customers. He was a French gentleman, a scientific gentleman, a man of great acquirements, a doctor. Not of Bouvet. Why, yes, of Bouvet, like Monsieur Manette, your father. The gentleman was of Bouvet. Like Monsieur Manette, your father, the gentleman was of repute in Paris. I had the honor of knowing him there. Our relations were business relations, but confidential. I was at that time in our French house and had been, oh, twenty years. At that time, I, I may ask, at what time, sir? I speak, miss, of twenty years ago. He married an English lady, and I was one of the trustees. His affairs, like the affairs of many other French gentlemen and French families, were entirely in Telson's hands. In a similar way, I am, or I have been, trustee of one kind or another for scores of our customers. These are mere business relations, miss. There is no friendship in them, no particular interest, nothing like sentiment. I have passed from one to another in the course of my business life, just as I pass from one of our customers to another in the course of my business day. In short, I have no feelings. I am a mere machine. To go on, but this is my father's story, sir, and I begin to think, the curiously roughened forehead was very intent upon him, that when I was left an orphan, through my mother surviving my father only two years, it was you who brought me to England. I am almost sure it was you. Mr. Lorry took the hesitating little hand that confidingly advanced to take his, as he put it with some ceremony to his lips. He then conducted the young lady straight away to her chair again, and holding her chair back with his left hand, and using his right by turns to rub his chin, pull his wig at the ears, or point what he said, stood looking down into her face while she sat looking up into his. Miss Manette, it was I, and you will see how truly I spoke of myself just now in saying I had no feelings, and that all the relations I hold with my fellow creatures are mere business relations. When you reflect that I have never seen you since, no, you have been the ward of Telson's house since, and I have been busy with the other business of Telson's house since. Feelings? I have no time for them, no chance of them, I passed my whole life, miss, in turning an immense pecuniary mangle. After this odd description of his daily routine of employment, Mr. Lorry flattened his flaxen wig upon his head with both hands, which was most unnecessary, for nothing could be flatter than its shining surface was before, and resumed his former attitude. So far, miss, as you have remarked, this is the story of your regretted father. Now comes the difference. If your father had not died when he did, don't be frightened, how you start. She did indeed start, and she caught his wrist with both her hands. Pray, said Mr. Lorry, in a soothing tone, bringing his left hand from the back of the chair to lay it on the supplicatory fingers that clasped him in so violent a tremble. Pray control your agitation, a matter of business. As I was saying, her look so discomposed him that he stopped, wandered, and began anew. As I was saying, if Monsieur Manette had not died, if he had suddenly and silently disappeared, if he had been spirited away, if it had not been difficult to guess to what dreadful place though no art could trace him, if he had an enemy in some compatriot who could exercise a privilege that I in my own time have known the boldest people afraid to speak of in a whisper, 
Across the water there, for instance, the privilege of filling up blank forms for the consignment of any one to the oblivion of a prison for any length of time. If his wife had implored the king, the queen, the court, the clergy, for any tidings of him and all quite in vain, then the history of your father would have been the history of this unfortunate gentleman, the doctor of Bouvet. I entreat you to tell me more, sir. I will. I am going to. You can bear it. I can bear anything but the uncertainty you leave me in at this moment. You speak collectedly, and you are collected. That's good, though his manner was less satisfied than his words. A matter of business. Regarded as a matter of business, business that must be done. Now if this doctor's wife, though a lady of great courage and spirit, had suffered so intensely from this cause before her little child was born, the little child was a daughter, sir, a daughter, a, a matter of business, don't be distressed. Miss, if the poor lady had suffered so intensely before her little child was born, that she came to the determination of sparing the poor child the inheritance of any part of the agony she had known the pains of, by rearing her in the belief that her father was dead, no, don't kneel, in heaven's name, why should you kneel to me? For the truth, O oh dear, good, compassionate sir, for the truth. A, a matter of business, you confuse me, and how can I transact business if I am confused? Let us be clear-headed. If you could kindly mention now, for instance, what nine times nine pence are, or how many shillings and twenty guineas, it would be so encouraging. I should be so much more at ease about your state of mind. Without directly answering to this appeal, she sat so still when he had very gently raised her, and the hands that had not ceased to clasp his wrists were so much more steady than they had been, that she communicated some reassurance to Mr. Jarvis Lorry. That's right, that's right, courage, business. You have business before you, useful business. Miss Manette, your mother took this course with you, and when she died, I believe broken-hearted, having never slackened her unavailing search for your father, she left you, at two years old, to grow to be blooming, beautiful and happy, without the dark cloud upon you of living in uncertainty whether your father soon wore his heart out in prison or wasted there through many lingering years. As he said the words, he looked down with an admiring pity on the flowing golden hair, as he pictured to himself that it might have been already tinged with gray. You know that your parents have no great possession, and that what they had was secured to your mother and to you. There has been no new discovery of money or of any other property, but he felt his wrist held closer and he stopped. The expression in the forehead, which had so particularly attracted his notice and which was now immovable, had deepened into one of pain and horror. But he has been found. He is alive. Greatly changed, it is too probable, almost a wreck. It is possible, though we will hope the best, still alive. Your father has been taken to the house of an old servant in Paris, and we are going there. I, to identify him if I can, you, to restore him to life, love, duty, rest, comfort. A shiver ran through her frame and from it through his. She said in a low, distant, awe-stricken voice, as if she were saying it in a dream, I am going to see his ghost. It will be his ghost, not him. Mr. Lorry quietly chafed the hands that held his arm. There, there, there. See now, see now. The best and worst are known to you now. You are well on your way to the poor, wrong gentleman, and with a fair sea voyage and a fair land journey, you will soon be at his dear side. She repeated in the same tone, sunk to a whisper, I have been free. I have been happy. Yet his ghost has never haunted me. Only one more thing, said Mr. Lorry, laying stress upon it as a wholesome means of enforcing her attention. He has been found under another name, his own, long forgotten or long concealed. It would be worse than useless now to inquire which, worse than useless to seek to know whether he has been for years overlooked or always designedly held prisoner. 
it would be worse than useless now to make any inquiries because it would be dangerous. Better not to mention the subject anywhere or in any way, and to remove him for a while at all events out of France. Even I, save as an Englishman and even Telson's, important as they are to French credit, avoid all naming of the matter. I carry about me not a scrap of writing openly referring to it. This is a secret service altogether. My credentials, entrees, and memoranda are all comprehended in the one line recalled to life, which may mean anything. But what is the matter? She doesn't notice a word. Miss Manette. Perfectly still and silent and not even fallen back in her chair, she sat under his hand utterly insensible, with her eyes open and fixed upon him, and with that last expression looking as if it were carved or branded into her forehead. So close was her hold upon his arm that he feared to detach himself lest he should hurt her. Therefore he called out loudly for assistance without moving. A wild-looking woman, whom even in his agitation Mr. Lorry observed to be all of a red color, and to have red hair, and to be dressed in some extraordinary tight-fitting fashion, and to have on her head a most wonderful bonnet like a grenadier wooden measure, and good measure too, or a great Stilton cheese, came running into the room in advance of the inn-servants, and soon settled the question of his detachment from the poor young lady by laying a brawny hand upon his chest and sending him flying back against the nearest wall. I really think this must be a man, was Mr. Lorry's breathless reflection simultaneously with his coming against the wall. Why, look at you all, bald this figure, addressing the inn-servants. Why don't you go and fetch things, instead of standing there staring at me? I am not so much to look at, am I? Why don't you go and fetch things? I'll let you know if you don't bring smelling salts, cold water, and vinegar. Quick, I will. There was an immediate dispersal for these restoratives, and she softly laid the patient on a sofa, and tended her with great skill and gentleness, calling her my precious and my bird, and spreading her golden hair aside over her shoulders with great pride and care. And you and Brown, she said indignantly, turning to Mr. Lorry, couldn't you tell her what you had to tell her without frightening her to death? Look at her with her pretty pale face and her cold hands. Do you call that being a banker? Mr. Lorry was so exceedingly disconcerted by a question so hard to answer that he could only look on at a distance with much feebler sympathy and humility, while the strong woman, having banished the inn-servants under the mysterious penalty of letting them know something not mentioned if they stayed there, staring, recovered her charge by a regular series of gradations, and coaxed her to lay her drooping head upon her shoulder. I hope she will do well now, said Mr. Lorry. No thanks to you and Brown if she does, my darling pretty. I hope, said Mr. Lorry, after another pause of feeble sympathy and humility, that you accompany Miss Manette to France. A likely thing, too, replied the strong woman. If it was ever intended that I should go across salt water, do you suppose Providence would have cast my lot in an island? This being another question hard to answer, Mr. Jarvis Lorry withdrew to consider it. Now I'm going to read from Our Intellectual Strength and Weakness by George Bourinot. Chapter 6. Essay Writing in Canada. But if Canada can point to some credible achievement of recent years in history, poetry, and essay writing, for I think if one looks from time to time at the leading magazines and reviews of the two continents, he will find that Canada is fairly well represented in their pages. There is one respect in which Canadians have never won any marked success, and that is in the novel or romance. Wacosta or the Prophecy, A Tale of the Canadas, was written sixty years ago by Major John Richardson, a native Canadian, but it was, at the best, a spirited imitation of Cooper, and has not retained the interest it attracted at a time when the American novelist had created a taste for exaggerated pictures of Indian life and forest scenery. Of course, attempts have been made time and again by other English Canadians to describe episodes of our history and portray some of our national and social characteristics, 
but with the single exception of The Golden Dog, written a few years ago by Mr. William Kirby of Niagara, I cannot point to one which shows much imaginative or literary skill. If we accept the historical romance by Mr. Marmette, Francois de Bienville, which has had several editions, French Canada is even weak in this particular, and this is the more surprising because there is abundance of material for the novelist or writer of romance in her peculiar society and institutions and in her historic annals and traditions. But as yet neither a Cooper nor an Irving nor a Hawthorne has appeared to delight Canadians in the fruitful field of fiction that their country offers to the pen of imaginative genius. It is true we have a work by de Gaspé, Le Ancien Canadien, which has been translated by Roberts and one or two others, but it has rather the value of historical annals than the spirit and form of true romance. It is the very poverty of our production and what ought to be a rich source of literary inspiration, French-Canadian life and history, that has given currency to a work whose signal merit is its simplicity of style and adherence to historical fact. As Parkman, many years ago, first commenced to illuminate the two often dull pages of Canadian history, so other American writers have also ventured in the still fresh field of literary effort that romance offers to the industrious, inventive brain. In the romance of Dollard, Tonti, and the Lady of Fort St. John, Mrs. Mary Hartwell Catherwood has recalled most interesting episodes of our past annals with admirable literary taste and a deep enthusiasm for Canadian history in its romantic and picturesque aspects. When we read Conan Doyle's Refugees, the best historical novel that has appeared from the English press for years, we may well regret that it is not a Canadian genius which has created so fascinating a romance out of the materials that exist in the history of the Ancien Regime. Dr. Doyle's knowledge of Canadian life and history is obviously very superficial, but slight as it is, he has used it with a masterly skill to give Canada a part in his story, to show how closely associated were the fortunes of the colony with the French court, with the plans and intrigues of the king and his mistresses, and of the wily ecclesiastics who made all subservient to their deep purpose. It would seem from our failure to cultivate successfully the same popular branch of letters that Canadians are wanting in the inventive and imaginative faculty, and that the spirit of materialism and practical habits, which has so long necessarily cramped literary effort in this country, still prevents happy ventures in this direction. It is a pity that no success has been won in this country, as in Australia, by Mrs. Campbell Prade, Tasma, and many others, in the way of depicting those characteristics of Canadian life in the past and present, which, when touched by the imaginative and cultured intellect, will reach the sympathies and earn the plaudits of all classes of readers at home and abroad. Perhaps Mr. Gilbert Parker, now a resident of London, but a Canadian by birth, education, and sympathies, will yet succeed in his laudable ambition of giving form and vitality to the abundant materials that exist in the Dominion, among the habitants on the old seigneuries of the French province, in that historic past of which the ruins still remain in Montreal and Quebec, in the Northwest with its quarrels of adventurers in the fur trade, and in many other sources of inspiration that exist in this country for the true storyteller, who can invent a plot and give his creations a touch of reality, and not that doll-like, sawdust appearance that the vapid characters of some Canadian stories assume from the very poverty of the imagination that has originated them. That imagination and humor have some existence in the Canadian mind, though one sees little of those qualities in the press or in public speeches or in parliamentary debates. We can well believe when we read The Dodge Club Abroad by Professor DeMille, who was cut off in the prime of his intellectual strength, or A Social Departure by Sarah Jeanette Duncan, 
who as a sequence of a trip around the world has given us not a dry book of travels, but a story with touches of genial humor and bright descriptions of life and nature, and who is now following up that excellent literary effort by promising sketches of East Indian life. A story which attracted some attention not long since for originality of conception and ran through several editions, Beggar's All, is written by a Miss L. Duggle, who is said to be a member of a Montreal family, and though this book does not deal with incidents of Canadian life, it illustrates that fertility of invention which is latent among our people and only requires a favorable opportunity to develop itself. The best literature of this kind is like that of France, which has the most intimate correspondence with the social life and development of the people of the country. The excellence of a romance, writes Chevalier Bunsen in his critical preface to Gustave Freytag's Debit and Credit, like that of an epic or a drama, lies in the apprehension and truthful exhibition of the course of human beings, the most vehement longing of our times is manifestly after a faithful mirror of the present. With us, all efforts in this direction have been most commonplace, hardly above the average of social notes in the columns of Ottawa newspapers. I do not, for one, depreciate the influence of good fiction on the minds of a reading community like ours. It is inevitable that a busy people, and especially women distracted with household cares, should always find that relief in this branch of literature, which no other reading can give them. And if the novel has then become a necessity of the times in which we live, at all events I hope Canadians, who may soon venture into the field, will study the better models, endeavor to infuse some originality into their creations and plots, and not bring the Canadian fiction of the future to that low level in which the school of realism in France, and in a minor degree in England and the United States, would degrade the novel and the story of everyday life. To my mind, it goes without saying that a history written with that fidelity to original authorities, that picturesqueness of narration, that philosophic insight into the motives and plans of statesmen, that study and comprehension of the character and life of a people, which should constitute the features of a great work of this class, that such a history has assuredly a much deeper and more useful purpose in the culture and education of the world than any work of fiction can possibly have, even when animated by a lofty genius. Still, as the novel and romance will be written as long as a large portion of the world amid the cares and activities of life seeks amusement rather than knowledge, it is for the Canadian Scott or Hawthorne or George Eliot or Dickens of the future to have a higher and purer aim than the majority of novel writers of the present day who, with a few notable exceptions like Black, Besant, Barry, Stevenson, or Oliphant, weary us by their dullness and lack of the imaginative and inventive faculty and represent rather the demands of the publishers to meet the requirements of a public which must have its new novel as regularly as the Scotchman must have his porridge, the Englishman his egg, and toast, and the American his ice water. If it were possible within the compass of this address to give a list of the many histories, poems, essays, and pamphlets that have appeared from the Canadian press during the first quarter of a century since the Dominion of Canada has been in existence, the number would astonish many persons who have not followed our literary activity. Of course, the greater part of this work is ephemeral in its character and has no special value. Much of the historical work is a dreary collection of facts and dates which shows the enterprise of school publishers and school teachers and is generally wanting in that picturesqueness and breadth of view which gave interest to history and leave a vivid impression on the mind of the student. Most of these pamphlets have been written on religious, political, or legal questions of the day. Many of the poems illustrate rather the aspirations of the schoolboy or maiden whose effusions generally appeared in the poet's corner of the village newspaper. Still, there are even among these mere literary transients evidences of power of incisive argument and of some literary style. 
In fact, all the scientific, historical, and poetical contributions of the period in question make up quite a library of Canadian literature. And here let me observe in passing, some persons still suppose that Bell Letters, works of fiction, poetry, and criticism alone constitute literature. The word can take in its complete sense a very wide range, for it embraces the pamphlet or monograph on the most abstruse scientific or mathematical or geographical or physical subject, as well as the political essay, the brilliant history, or the purely imaginative poem or novel. It is not so much the subject as the form and style which make them worthy of a place in literature. One of the most remarkable books ever written, The Espire de Loi by Montesquieu, has won the highest place in literature by its admirable style, and in the science of politics by the importance of its matter. The works of Lyell, Huxley, Hunt, Dawson, Tyndale, and Darwin owe their great value not entirely to the scientific ideas and principles and problems there discussed, but also to the lucidity of style in which the whole subject is presented to the reader, whether versed or not in science. Literature is a large word, says Matthew Arnold, discussing with Tyndall this very subject. It may mean everything written with letters or printed in a book. Euclid's Elements and Newton's Principia are thus literature. All knowledge that reaches us through books is literature. But as I do not mean by knowing ancient Rome, knowing merely more or less of Latin bell letters, and taking no account of Rome's military and political and legal and administrative work in the world, and as by knowing ancient Greece, I understand knowing her as the giver of Greek art, and the guide to a free and right use of reason and to scientific methods, and the founder of our mathematics and physics and astronomy and biology. I understand knowing her as all this, and not merely knowing certain Greek poems and histories and treaties and speeches, so as to the knowledge of modern nations also. By knowing modern nations, I mean not merely knowing their belles letters, but knowing also what has been done by such men as Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, Darwin. I submit this definition of literature by a great English critic and poet, who certainly knew what he was writing about, to the studious consideration of Principal Grant, who, in an address to the Royal Society two years ago, appeared to have some doubt that much of its work could be called literature a doubt that he forgot for the moment actually consigned to a questionable level also his many devious utterances and addresses on political, religious, and other questions of the day, and left him entirely out of the ranks of literateurs, and in a sort of limbo, which is a world of neither divinity, nor politics, nor letters. Taking this definition of the bright apostle of English culture, I think Canadians can fairly claim to have some position as a literary people, even if it be a relatively humble one, on account of the work done in history, bell letters, political science, and the sciences generally science alone has had in Canada for nearly half a century many votaries who have won for themselves high distinction. As the eminent names on the lists of membership of the Royal Society since its foundation can conclusively show, the literature of science, as studied and written by Canadians, is remarkably comprehensive and finds a place in every well-furnished library of the world. The Doyen of Science in Canada Sir William Dawson, we are all glad to know, is still at work after a long and severe illness, which was no doubt largely due to the arduous devotion of years to education and science. It is not my intention to refer here to other well-known names in scientific literature, but I may pause for an instant to mention the fact that one of the earliest scientific writers of eminence, who was a Canadian by birth and education, was Mr. Elkanah Billings, paleontologist and geologist, who contributed his first papers to the Citizen of Ottawa, then Bytown, afterwards to have greatness thrown upon it, and made the political capital of Canada. 
That's the end of the first episode of Go to Sleep. Thank you, and good night.